In this episode of 2000 Books, how to organize your mind so that you can solve the most difficult business challenges. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Today we have Dr. Daniel Levitin who is a musician, record producer, author of 3 consecutive number 1 best-selling books and professor of psychology and behavioral neuroscience at McGill University. We will be chatting about his most recent bestseller, The Organized Mind. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hello, Mani. Hi. Uh so really important book in terms of organizing our minds. Uh Daniel, tell us your personal story and what led you to writing this book. Well, I found myself in in the situation that a lot of people are in. About six years ago, I began to feel like I was getting less done, and at the end of the day, I felt more stressed out. And I was comparing it to when I was younger, so of course it's confounded with the aging process. But I just felt like I was getting less done. I was less creative. I had less time to myself, less time to spend with loved ones, and pursuing the activities I really love. and because of the nature of my life and the path that I've been on I was surrounded have been for many years by a lot of very successful people uh Nobel prize winners and uh, heads of of fortune 500 companies rock stars uh government leaders and they were um living this really productive and satisfying life full of activities including leisure activities and I thought well maybe I can learn something from them about how to recapture that sense of possibility that sense of time maybe they're doing some time management things and organizational things in their lives that i don't know about and i thought well and, and i'm a neuroscientist maybe i can tie what they say in to what the neuroscience research has learned about attention and memory and productivity and um this was after spending about a month in libraries and bookstores looking for a book about this and there were a whole lot of books about how to be more efficient and how to be more productive but none of them were based on science or on um real people's experience they just seemed to be based on what the particular author thought would sell so i figured i i had to write the book that i wanted to read yeah and uh it is definitely a great read on a scientific read on productivity so uh, daniel let's get you know let's go a little maybe 10,000 feet over and let's talk about a very big picture overview of what this book entails well i think the the big picture is that neuroscientists have learned a lot in the last 10 years about why the brain pays attention to some things and why you forget other things uh and uh we've learned a lot about productivity and decision making and task switching all things that would be helpful to the entrepreneur to the business person but most of that information hasn't trickled down to the average person which i think is a shame so a, a, a lot of the book is describing the science so that you're not just being i think that it's easier to accept information if you're not just told that it's true but you're told why it's true mhm absolutely uh, and uh, as uh, as a physicist and as an engineer in my past life i i like for me science science based stuff is what really excites me i mean and it's easily memorable when i know their experiments and when i know their real results behind this whole thing rather than just some theory behind it 
Well, I think you've hit on something important, which is information management and information literacy. To be an effective entrepreneur, you have to be able to tell the truth from the BS. And part of that entails being able to look at data that support certain positions or statements. Uh, you know, your, a competitor or a supplier can make some bold statement to you uh, during a negotiation, uh, and you have to have the ability to know whether it's true or not and to know where to look. Yeah. So um, let's let's get into the book. Let's let's talk about three really important ideas in the book as they pertain to entrepreneurs. And there are a lot of great ideas, but I guess we're going to limit to three because um, one thing I learned from the book uh, it's easier to chunk things down and be you know block them up. And something that we in this interview in this podcast we always focus on keeping it very specific to three makes it memorable and learnable in some ways. Well, I agree. And there's actually a science behind that, which is that the conscious mind can't attend to more than three things at once. So three, three is a good, a good package. Well, I, I think one of the first big ideas of the book has to do with brain extenders. That is, um, try to use the environment or things in the environment to enhance your brain capacity so that you can free your brain up uh, from the drudgery and trivial reminders and chores that it might normally do, uh, to think big thoughts, to think strategically, to solve problems. Uh, and so an example of a brain extender is, is written language. You know, our ancestors for tens of thousands of years had to memorize all kinds of things like recipes and uh, who owed whom some shells and beads, you know, financial exchanges. Uh, they had to memorize instructions for how to prepare food so that this leafy plant wouldn't poison you. And once we began writing things down around 5,000 years ago, that set the stage for all of the innovation and technology that we have today. Uh, writing things down is a huge brain extender. And it's not limited to 5,000 years ago. I think all of us can empty our minds. I know you spoke with my colleague and friend David Allen not mm -hmm. long ago. That's true. And... Um, he, he very much enjoyed the conversation, by the way. Uh, and his big idea is one that I've, I describe in the book, which is to do the mind-clearing exercise. Once a day, more or less often, depending on how much chatter you have up in your head, just write down everything that's in there. Uh, I've got to go to the laundry on my way home today. I have to remember to pick up milk, check to see if we've got enough pet food in the cabinet. Maybe I need to get, oh, and I have to call Aunt Tilly. She left a voicemail for me. I haven't called her back. She's going to worry. You know how Aunt Tilly worries. Well, that's four things right there. And remember, the brain can only handle three things at once. So your capacity to actually focus on your work or solve problems is compromised by these reminders your brain is giving you. As soon as you write them down, your brain knows that you've written them down and it stops bothering you with them. It's tremendously powerful in terms of uh, fomenting innovation and creativity. And it's fascinating you said we should write it down rather than use some electronic tool because there's some truths to cursive writing. Is that like there's some truths to uh, putting our senses to work in some ways? Yeah, so uh, it turns out that writing things down by hand involves deeper cognitive processing than typing it. It's just the nature of motor action planning. And so you're more likely to remember things that you wrote down, even if you lose the paper that you wrote it down on, just through the act of writing it down. You know, Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, 
who has lots of meetings in Silicon Valley, says that she carries around a, a pad of paper and a pen. And people look at her like she says, like she's carrying around a stone tablet and chisel. You know, in the heart of Silicon Valley, why isn't she using something electronic? But she's figured out that this is the way that she retains information. And I've run into a lot of Nobel Prize winners and, and busy, technically sophisticated people who use three by five index cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what I use. It's yeah. like carrying around in my pocket. It's about all my stuff. It's it's awesome. And it's way better than any technology I have come across so far. I'm a big user of a lot of other uh, note-taking devices, but for emptying my brain, this is one of the best things I can do. And I, I think we'll... As an entrepreneur, the reason why you're saying we need to build an external brain in some ways is because as an entrepreneur, it's really tough to um, be able to focus and be able to give our very best when we're constantly distracted by all these things we have in our brain. Right. Uh, And I think um, to continue the idea of brain extenders, if there are things that you can put in the environment to remind you so that you don't have to keep it up here or look through a pad of paper – that's good. So an example is B.F. Skinner, the famous Harvard psychologist, used to say if he heard on the weather report that it was going to rain the next day, instead of trying to remember to take his umbrella, he'd go to the closet as soon as he heard the weather report, take the umbrella out, and hang it on the, the doorknob. So now as he leaves the room, the apartment, the house, whatever, the, the environment is reminding him to take the umbrella. So we're really focusing on emptying our brain in some ways so that we can um, you know, use the, use the brain for the right things. Think of it as feng shui for the brain, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not so much emptying it as decluttering it mm-hmm. and freeing it up to do other things. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, David Allen. He, sa- he had a very clear distinction when we had the interview. He said, you don't need more time to have great ideas. You need more space. And yeah. that's exactly what you said. You need to declutter. You know, that gives you space to be clear and to have great ideas. Right. I agree. Yeah. So first step is to create an external brain or create what is called a brain extension. What, what's the next key idea here? I think another key idea, which comes from neuroscience, and again, many, many successful people, uh, whether you're talking about artists or business people, scientists, engineers, um, writers, uh, government leaders, generals, they, they've figured this out without knowing the science behind it. But there are two primary modes of attention. There's the task positive mode. Uh, I, I think of it as the central executive mode of the brain. And we all know what this is. You're engaged in a task. You're focused. You're really humming on all cylinders. You're not distracted. Everything's coming together. Uh, And then there's a kind of antithetical mode, which scientists call the task negative network, or I call the daydreaming network. And that's where you're not engaged in a task, and you're not in control of your thoughts. Your thoughts are loosely connected to one another, and they're sort of taking you for a ride. And in that mode, you sometimes find that if you were to be interrupted, you couldn't even report on what you were thinking about. It's just you were off in another world. Well, it turns out that that daydreaming mode is an antidote for um, too much time in the executive mode. That being in the executive mode for a long time is depleting, it's tiring, it's exhausting. You're literally depleting neurochemicals uh, when you're focused and, and engaged, uh, which is why we feel tired after really hard intellectual work. By the way, 
people who do intellectual work, people who think for a living have to sleep more at night than people who do manual labor because thinking is more tiring. No matter how awful and difficult the manual labor is, it takes less time to recover from than mental work. So um, the antidote is daydreaming. And what we find is that people who can enter this daydreaming mode periodically throughout the day, even for just 15 minutes, get more done at the end of the day, more than making up for the 15-minute time that they spent daydreaming. Uh, and their work is judged as of higher quality and more creative. Um, so taking a break is, is crucial. Yeah, and uh, I want to dig into it because as entrepreneurs, we, we're trying to solve complex problems. And a lot of times we get into this into our head that we've got to stay focused and work 16 hours a day and constantly work, work, work and not give ourselves a break and really be hardworking people. And that's the way to build, you know, build something big and be ambitious and, you know, make it happen. But it seems like there's this interplay in between these that really allows us to get the very best. I'm so glad you brought this up because um, in this over-caffeinated society we're living in, I think all of us have had the feeling that you're working, 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 and then you, you're, you're in front of your computer perhaps, and you feel your attention starting to flag, and you find you're distracted, and so what do you do? You reach for another cup of coffee, but what your brain is telling you is that it wants to let your attention flag for a little bit, and so as a rule of thumb, if you take a 15-minute break every couple of hours – it won't actually interfere with your creativity and productivity. It'll enhance it. And um, what counts as a break? Because I think uh, that's that's a question I struggle with myself a lot of times. Like, um, is a is a break only like meditation or taking a walk, or how about watching a funny video on YouTube? Like, where is the line between checking your social networks compared to really taking a break and letting it go? Well, there are different kinds of breaks. So when I'm talking about taking a break to get into this other mode of processing, I'm into the daydreaming mode. Um, you know, watching a funny video on YouTube or going through your social networks, your Vine and Tumblr and Instagram and Pinterest and Twitter and Snapchat and HipChat and MyChat and all the rest, that's not going to put you in the daydreaming mode usually, not reliably. Uh, not deeply, but things like taking a walk, exercise, immersing yourself in nature, immersing yourself in art, music, literature, those kinds of th meditation, as you mentioned, those kinds of things count as a break in the sense that I mean it. Mm, so reading a book, even if it's an intense book on business, it would still be okay as long as you're not really actively trying to… I wouldn't say so, no, literature. Mm, literature. Not literature. Now, there is some literary nonfiction… But um, usually business books are very um, succinct and direct and goal-oriented, like business people. <laughs> and that's not probably going to put you in the daydreaming mode the way, say, Jane Eyre or War and Peace would. Hmm. So we should build in, let's say, you know, or let me, let me dig into your life. Or when you sit down to do productive work, when you sit down and you block out four hours of your time, and I, maybe you don't even block out four hours of your time, but is it like you do 50 minutes, of five zero, 50 minutes on and then 10 minute break or, um, you know, two hours on and 15 minutes break? How does it work and what kind of breaks do you take? Well, so it depends on what I'm doing and it depends on the day because, you know, some days you're a little bit more focused than others, reasons out of your control. But yeah, I typically, I typically will work. I don't do the 25 minute, five minute thing. 
Mm-hmm. Pomodoro. Become, right, which has become a fad. Um, but I'll typically work for an hour and 45 or an hour and 50 minutes. And then I'll take 15 minutes off to play the guitar or to go for a walk. I take two or three 20-minute wa- walks every day. I have a little 20-minute loop around my house that I that I do, and it involves some hills, so I get some cardio. Um, I'm in nature because around my house there's a lot of trees and gardens. Um, and so it's either walking or playing a guitar, or I'm, I'm always in the middle of a novel. Right now I'm reading The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, and I'll be sure that I get a good 20 minutes of that every day, and all of that helps. So that's great, and you're playing a musical instrument that you know very well how to play. Well, yeah, so I, I spend some time every day learning something on the instrument or practicing, but that's not the same. Mm, that, yeah, that's why that, I want to make the still, distinction. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes I'll play guitar, and I'm learning to play guitar, and it, it taxes me, and it, you know, it, it challenges me as well. So that is not a break. That is not a daydreaming mode at that point, because it's, again, engaging my prefrontal cortex and challenging me. I think the question to ask yourself is, is the activity goal-directed and purposeful? Or not. Hmm. Okay. So the activity shouldn't be goal-directed or purposeful. And at the same time, it shouldn't, you know, I mean, the reason why, why would you not say that checking your social networks or checking your Facebook or YouTube count as daydreaming? Because like, that kind of qualifies the distinction you just made. But where, where is the other end of the spectrum? The other end of the spectrum is sitting on a beach and drinking a martini and looking at the waves or staring out your window and just, you know, letting your thoughts run. The thing about checking your social media is that it requires you to actively select and, I mean, you're you're very engaged and you're controlling the flow of information. Now, I'm not saying you should never do that. Mm -hmm. There's time for it. Yeah, but that… To me, I think anybody who's been in this day, everybody's been in this daydreaming mode. So anybody who thinks about what that's like knows that it's it's not typically what you get from Facebook and Twitter and the rest. Yeah, no, I wanted to make I wanted to make it really clear for our listeners how they can structure these things in their lives and how they can like really um, hopefully you know get the best out of their day to day hours in some ways. A nap, for example, is a great break. If you can take a 15-minute nap. Uh, And a lot of people, but not everybody, have the experience that just when they're going to sleep, you know, either either bedtime or a nap, or just as they wake up, there's this brief period where you're kind of halfway in the two worlds. You're not exactly asleep and you're not exactly awake. And some people hear sounds or they see images or they're – their thoughts are kind of fluid, and this is a recognized attentional state, and it's very close to the daydreaming mode I'm talking about. And the power of that mode is this, uh, for creativity and problem solving. If you've tried to solve a problem deliberately uh, and purposefully in your central executive mode, and you haven't come up with a solution, it may be that the solution isn't linear. You, you know, you can't just go A connects to B, connects to C, and now I'm finally at D. It may be that you've got to follow some circuitous path or make links between things that you had, hadn't previously seen as connected. That kind of insight often comes from the daydreaming mode because by definition, it's connecting thoughts that aren't typically connected and in a nonlinear fashion. So if you're there clicking through your Facebook feed, Uh, And you see this, and it reminds you of that, and now I want to check in on what this person's doing. That's pretty linear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
This is great. This is great. Uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna have to start thinking about putting structures in place for my daydreaming efforts as well. Um, so, Daniel, let's talk about now, like the third key idea, uh, which I personally thought was really important as we talked in the pre-interview. It was just procrastination. Are you sure you want to talk about it now? <laughs> I think we should talk about it after the interview. <laughs> well, okay. Rather than putting it off, let's talk about it now. Yeah. There is a science to procrastination, and um, people procrastinate for different reasons. And uh, sometimes it's always the same reason for a given individual. Sometimes all the reasons apply to somebody. And we all procrastinate, let's face it. And I think all of us would like to procrastinate a little bit less. Sometimes we procrastinate because of fear of failure. We're afraid that uh, the thing we're doing might just be a little bit outside our skill set or our ability. Uh, we're afraid of failing and, and the social consequences of that. Sometimes we procrastinate because not because of fear of failure, but just the task is unpleasant. You don't want to do it because it involves a confrontation or it involves you losing money. I, how many times have you gotten a parking ticket or something and you didn't pay it the minute it came in because it's just so painful to have to write that checkout or make that web payment, right? And you feel so stupid for not having put the extra quarter in the meter. So, I mean, there's, you know, that's just the unpleasantness. And we also procrastinate often because we're not sure where to begin. And David Allen says you should look at your to-do lists that come from the mind-clearing exercise and if you've got a recurring item that's been on there for days or weeks or even months, ask yourself if it's an actionable item. Is, is this thing on my to-do list something I can actually do or is it too abstract? And maybe that's the reason I haven't done it. So an example of this for people in my generation would be, uh, is it time to put uh, my dear Aunt Tilly in a home or not, <laughs> right? Now, if that's your to-do item, no wonder you're procrastinating. That That's not actionable. It's a question, but you need to break it up into smaller pieces. Uh, and the pieces might be things like, um, let's talk to Aunt Tilly's doctor and see what he says. Maybe we should visit some rest homes and see what they're like. Maybe we should talk to some of the siblings and see how they feel. Uh, you talk to Aunt Tilly herself. Those are actionable items. Those are things you can put on your to-do list that you can do. Now you know where to start. There's no, no, no engineer shows up and says, today I'm going to build the bridge, right? I mean, it's, it's a bunch of different steps. Or, you know, an electrical engineer, today I'm going to design this circuit. Um, you know, there are preliminary steps of get data gathering and constraints and performance specs and those are the things you can find out and, and implement. And that makes procrastination go away. Yeah. And I, I mean, you're talking to, to an engineer himself here, but one of the things I find challenging as an entrepreneur, and a lot of my entrepreneurial friends do too, is that those things with long-term horizon, those things which are you know, big projects, which will have payouts within a year's time frame, two years time frame, and we feel like, or maybe even months time frame. I mean, our brains are wired to get reward today. So we just tend to start late or we, you know, we're looking for that immediate reward and we're getting frustrated. And somehow we tire, or maybe as Steele pointed out, we try, you know, we tie ourselves forward to this whole idea of success in this endeavor or in this um, action. So I think, um, as you pointed out in the book, there's an equation for this and uh, how we handle this and how we can actually, uh, you know, in some ways get to understand ourselves better with this equation and maybe manage this equation better. 
Thank you for bringing this up. Yes, um, uh, Steele talks about a procrastination equation, and it's really a matter of human nature that we put things off. And I'm glad you brought up the bit about the delay uh, because it ties in to a kind of work ethic. Most of the things that most of us do don't yield an immediate result, especially entrepreneurs. We're sowing seeds for a long-term, what I would call an event horizon. The point at which I'm going to get an external reward for something might be very far out in the future. And yet the brain, as you point out, is wired for immediate reward. So if I can answer an email today or 10 of them, I get a little bit of reward. And it's, a, it's an actual chemical reward in the brain in terms of the release of dopamine, the feel-good hormone. I send out an email. I answer a query. I um, you know, pay a bill. I contact a new supplier. Um, Anything that feels like I'm getting something done gives me a reward now. Uh, and I don't get the same reward from finishing um, a paragraph in a report that I'm writing or you know, making some new design modification that's not going to hit the market for another year. So I tend to put off the things with the long event reward horizon and to do the things that are – clearly less important in terms of my long-term success, but give me an immediate reward. And that's the reason we go to Facebook and Twitter. I can get some new information now. I might be able to join an online social networking conversation. People might give me a few thumbs up. I've got some immediate reward. And we've got to fight the tendency to take the immediate reward and the immediate gratification and sow seeds for the long term. Yeah. And I, I want to read out uh, the procrastination equation, procrastination yeah. equation that Steele has for our listeners' uh, benefit. And as an engineer, as a physicist, I love equations. I love uh, to see things uh, laid out in a very linear fashion. Um, so what he said was procrastination is equal to time to complete a task multiplied by distractibility. So these two uh, components are on the top of the equation. Right, but they're numerators, so they are if you numerators. increase the person's distractibility or the number of distracting things in the environment, or you increase the time to complete the task, how much time there is to do it, then because they're in the numerator, you're increasing the likelihood that procrastination will occur. If you've got a month to do something, you feel less urgency to start it than if you have it due in, in an hour. And then the denominator. And the denominator is a self-confidence multiplied by task value. Right. Implying that... Implying, yeah, I guess, I mean, we're, we're struggling with our self-confidence in some ways when, I mean, if we have a, a lot of confidence in being able to complete something, then we are not going to procrastinate it. But if we don't have enough confidence in completing something, then we're going to find ways to continue to, you know, punt the ball. Or, yep. you know, kick the can down the road. Exactly. And I guess it, in some ways that ties down, ties to our self-worth um, of how we see this whole situation. Yes. And to, to Steele's procrastination equation, I would add uh, the, the event horizon that, uh, on the, in the numerator, how, how long it is before you can expect to get a reward. Mm -hmm. I think that's a third factor in the numerator. Yeah. So uh, you would multiply 
the delay into the equation. So the equation really would become time to complete the task multiplied by distractibility, multiplied by delay. All of this in the numerator divided by self-confidence as to how confident you feel in completing the task multiplied by, t- by the value of the task itself. So yeah, now, you're an engineer, so I know we can have this conversation. These These terms are conceptual terms, and it's a conceptual equation. We haven't specified the units for self-confidence. And of course, the choice of unit and scaling of however it is we quantify this will profoundly affect the equation. And one would need to do some more empirical research to figure out what the appropriate units and scaling factors are. So in your mind, maybe there's uh, an an implied Greek letter uh, omega in front of each uh, term uh, you know, omega sub one, omega sub two, and and those omegas are the weighting factors that need to be mm-hmm. uh, need to be ascertained. Absolutely, and I think uh, uh, the easier thing as an engineer, as a physicist, I can see is for me to just realize that this is what's going on when I am sitting in front of a task and I'm trying to avoid it. When I'm sitting in front of uh, do trying to do some editing, which I hate doing. And so I want to avoid it as much as possible, but there's reasons why I'm trying to avoid it. And I can see those reasons now quantified in some ways, now visible to me. And then I can make those distinctions and uh, realize that this is what's happening. I can make the change and move forward. So I think awareness brings a huge uh, value in this. You know, the awareness of this equation changes the way we can see this. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is all. Uh, this is all I've learned from your book. So, well, I, I'm so gratified that you gave it such a close read. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was it was fun, and uh, and Steele ends with two things, and I think those are those are really key. The the idea that they're faulty beliefs, which is life should be easy, and that our self worth is dependent on our success. Uh, these are so important as entrepreneurs, like to to realize that it's not going to be easy and then we shouldn't be defining our self-worth with with our successes. Right. I mean, it's. I think certainly having the ambition to succeed is a good thing and that's brought us things like penicillin and, uh, um, you know, the internal combustion engine and solar panels. But um, your self-worth as an individual, as a human being, has to revolve around things other than that because as every entrepreneur knows – uh, there are lots of failures in the future if you're going to be doing anything worth doing. Um, and you look at successful people and the paradox is that most of them have had many more failures than the people who we consider to be failures. It's just that we're not aware of all the failures or they, they fade into memory. But um, you know, most successful people have tried a lot of different things before they hit on something that worked. Yeah, it is a beautiful paradox. I mean, the successful people have failed more than the people who have failed. And it's just, I think the interesting thing is the, you know, for many of the people who failed, if they just would have kept at it, yeah. uh, they probably would have found success. Yeah, persistence. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. I mean, this is so fascinating and uh, um, a lot of great, great learning here, Daniel. Let's put this into action because I think another thing you say in the book is the more we're involved with something, the more easier it's going to be to learn rather than just passively listening to this podcast, let's say. I would, you know, I want the listeners to take action. I want the listeners to do something. And that's something we always emphasize here. There's no learning without action. So please give our listeners uh, some specific action items. Well, I think three of the take-home action items from the organized mind from from the book uh, are to stop multitasking, 
because multitasking doesn't work. The brain doesn't work that way. Immerse yourself in a single activity, unitask, uh, monotask, whatever you want to call it. That's important. Second, uh, write things down. Write things down to get them out of your head, to clear your mind, and to prioritize the tasks that you have to do so that when you sit down to work, you know that by definition, the thing you're doing is the most important thing you could be doing, not just something that happened to be up on your screen. And then the third thing I would say is to take breaks. Take them often and make sure that they're really restorative. And you'll find that you can get a lot more done in a day if you just um, walk away from your work every couple of hours, um, even to the point that you'll find that you're solving problems during your break times that you couldn't solve as quickly if you kept plugging away at them. Great. Uh, so, Daniel, thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview today. I really appreciated it. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it as well. And tell our listeners how to get hold of you, find the book, everything else. Well, my web page is Daniel Levitin, all one word, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E-V like Victor, I-T like Tango, I-N like November, DanielLevitin.org. Uh, the book, The Organized Mind, uh, is available at any bookseller online and brick-and-mortar bookshops. And I have a new book coming out in September that entrepreneurs might find useful called A Field Guide to Lies, hmm. Critical Thinking in the Information Age. And that, too, should be available at all the normal bookstores. Both books will be available as audiobooks as well. That's great. And uh, thank you, Daniel. Well, my ambitious friends, as you very well know, knowledge without execution leads to no real learning. And you have to take action on what you learn ASAP, like right away for that learning to be useful to you. So thankfully, we've made that implementation super easy for you. We've made that action taking super easy for you. So we have created an implementation guide of this interview. All you need to do is head on over to 2000books.com slash summary or text the word summary to 44222 and grab this free one-page implementation guide of the book. And I want to reward those who are action-oriented because those are the real people who are going to learn. So I will only keep this action guide there till February 7th, which is Tuesday. So you better get it before it disappears. Now, if you're on your phone, it's really easy. Just hit pause, text the word summary to 44222, and you will get the action guide. Until next time, my ambitious friends. 